0: I'm going to, I don't know that I'm going to preach today. I'm going to teach, and I'm going to teach on a subject that, you know, you may not enjoy, but it's necessary, okay? Whenever there is a, a contest, and we have con- all kinds of contests in our life. We, all, we face all kinds of, of opposition. We face all kinds of opponents. And I, and I can remember back in high school when I played football. We would prepare all week for our opponent. Now, it was a game, okay? But we approached it like it was going to be a war because for some of us, it was going to be. Uh, I I played uh, in in the interior line where you don't get any glory. You never get to carry the football. I got to touch it every play, okay? I was the center. But there wasn't a lot of glory up there. And so we would approach it that way. And, you know, you, you learn your opponent. You learn what to expect, but there comes a moment somewhere in that week, and usually it, it was the night before or just before the game, when all of a sudden it dawns on you, you know what, I'm, I, this is going to be a battle. This, this is not going to be easy. And you realize that you have an opponent to face. Folks, we face a real opponent. We have an enemy whose sole purpose is to eradicate us to annihilate us to wipe us off the face of this earth that that's his purpose we've been talking for a few weeks about standing firm and so today we've come to that place where we need to know who our enemy is we don't need to 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 continue to rely on some of the information that we've learned through life. And I'm going to be... Uh, we're going to have a lot of Scripture, okay? Because I just think it's good in this case to let Scripture speak for itself. I'd encourage you to write some of this stuff down, and I would encourage you to, to go over this a little later. But but we face an enemy who, you know, let me just put it this way. He hates our guts. He hates our guts. And he, he hates us with a passion unlike anything that we can imagine. I mean, here on earth, you know... It, even enemies can reach a compromise most of the time. They, can, they, they may not like each other, but they, they agree to exist without war sometimes. Well, that's not the case with our enemy. He is sworn to destroy us. And, and that, let me just put it as simply as I can. He wants us dead, okay? That's D with a capital D, E-A-D, dead. He's not human, okay? He's not flesh and blood. He is a spiritual creature. He's an angelic being who literally is the embodiment of pure evil. He, he's wickedness to the nth degree. That's, that's, the, that's the way my mother used to put it, to the nth degree. That means multiplied times, multiplied times, multiplied ad infinitum. But, here's, and here's the deal. Most of us have a different picture of who he really is than what the Bible teaches Most of us, when we think of Satan or we think of the devil, we envision something, okay? I I can see it already right here where I'm at because the little picture popped into my mind as well. We envision a little red creature, or if you went to the high school I went to, a little blue creature, okay? With a pointed little beard, beady little eyes, horns on his head, pitchfork in his hand, and a pointed tail. And we've been told if we don't behave, he'll get us. There's a sign on the way to Montgomery. Any of y'all ever seen it? There are two signs that I can quote almost perfectly. It's that sign, and there used to be a sign on top of the hill uh, on the way to Gardendale down, uh, uh, well, my mind just went Crosston, from Crosston to Newcastle. And it was, if you drink and drive, drink milk and stay alive. <laughs> I think it's the first thing I ever memorized. But there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sign on the way to Montgomery by a lake, and, and all of you have seen it. And it says, if you don't be good, the devil will get you. And we've been taught that. We've been taught that, that uh, I can remember my mother uh, talking about the boogeyman. And so we have this picture in our mind, and that picture basically comes from millenniums of folklore and from myth and from worn-out parents that would do anything to get their kids to be quiet and go to sleep. Amen? Y'all know what I'm talking about. We've been told that that the devil's kingdom is hell, that he reigns from his throne in hell. Listen to me. The Bible does not teach that. He is not presently in hell. He has never even been to hell. Hell. Because once you go to hell, there is no return from that place. There's no there's there's no doorknob on the inside as such. And so he's he's never been there. But this is not the enemy that most of us think of. We think about little horns, little beard. You know, the TV devil, the mascot devil. And he's not really as bad as as the Bible describes him. But folks. Standing firm means that we have to know our enemy. We have to know who he is. And the way we learn who he is is from Scripture. Jesus talked about him. The Old Testament talks about him. In fact, seven Old Testament writers talk about him. And, and every writer in the New Testament mentions him. So he's not a figment of our imagination. He's not the, the personification of evil. He is a literal creature. And so if we're going to stand firm, we have to know who he is and what he can do and what he can't do. It's got to be factual. It's got to be realistic. If, if it's not, we're woefully unprepared, okay? And unprepared means we're defeated. And defeated means we're dead. Does that make sense? If we, don't, if we don't know who he is, we can't prepare ourselves for his attacks. And Scripture has given us everything that we need to know. Prepare ourselves. Yes, we are in Christ, okay? And we are overcomers. But we face our enemy and we face his forces every day. And if we're not prepared and we're not realistic, that means we're not operating out of fairy tale stuff or mythology stuff, but we're operating out of the truth. Folks, we we get in trouble. There's a, a famous Chinese general. His name is Sun Tzu. And he wrote a book thousands of years ago, called The Art of War. Now, I'm not necessarily recommending that book, but it is a great book on warfare, okay? It's got some, some great statements. It's also got some garbage in it, okay? So if you choose to read the book, you need, to, you need to sort the bones out from the fish. But he makes a statement. He says, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles, In other words, you shouldn't be afraid if you know who you are and you know who your enemy is. And then he says this, If you know yourself but not your enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. In other words, if you know yourself but you don't know your enemy, about half the time you're going to get beat. Then he says this, If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Now, here's the reality. Most Christians don't have a clue who they are. Okay, now that's for another day, and we're not going to talk about that today. And they don't know who the devil is, for the most part. And guess what happens? Their batting average is zero. If you'll just listen today, we can go from a zero batting average to a 500 batting average, because we're going to learn who the Bible says the devil is today, and what the Bible says he can do and what he can't do. Okay? And so I want to just encourage you. It's essential that we know our enemy. I've already said this, but he's real. His existence is, is taught in the Old Testament by seven different writers. New Testament, every writer mentions him. Jesus taught about his existence. Jesus wasn't just catering to the mythological beliefs and the, and the fables of the culture he lived in. He was real. And Jesus had met him eyeball to eyeball, face to face. And it's interesting that 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 Jesus didn't look at him as a figment of his imagination. He he, he wasn't Mary didn't tell Jesus stories about uh, about the devil so he would behave. He was real. And folks, the Bible teaches that he's real and he's out to kill us. Now, scripture gives us a lot of insights. And we're going to look at some scriptures. If you've got your Bible this morning, I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel 28. And we're going to look at a a passage of Scripture. There are two passages, two primary passages in the Old Testament that that give us a picture of his origin and and that give us a picture of of how he became who he is. Now, the book of Job just literally talks about him and, 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 and names him. In these two passages... It doesn't necessarily name him as such. In fact, the prophet starts out prophesying by, about a king, and then all of a sudden it goes from, an, uh, from a human being to a supernatural being almost. It, 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 it changes. So I'm going to share a little bit in Ezekiel, and then we're going to look at a passage in Isaiah. But if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Ezekiel 28. We're going to read verse 12 through 15. And this is God speaking. He's speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And he said, you had the seal of perfection. He's talking about a creature here that's more than a, a human being. It's a supernatural creature. You had the seal of protection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. In other words, he had all wisdom. And he was, he was beautiful beyond description. You were in the Eden, the garden of God. Then it begins to describe the way that this creature looked. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship, and and there's a there's a it's interesting how this is translated, from, because at most places places in scripture it's translated a little bit different, and so I'm going to give you both translations. It says. And the goal the workmanship of your settings and sockets that's that 's typically the way most bibles uh, translate it, but it can also be translated and it is in Hebrew in most places it 's tambourines and flutes now we've been we've some of us have some of us have been taught that 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 uh, satan before he was satan he was the, he was the morning star he was the star the son of the morning basically he was lucifer and he was we've been taught that 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 very likely he was the worship leader of heaven and this is where that teaching comes from and it's a good possibility okay i don't know but i know this we have a creature who's full of wisdom and he's beautiful beyond description and he is covered in these stones. Why is he covered in these stones? Because he's literally in the presence of God and he reflects the glory of God. And and as he reflects that glory, it's all kind of, I mean, he's like a rainbow of of colors. Not only that, it it seems that if you translate it tambourines and and flutes, he he has musical instruments that are part of who he is. And if you don't, Translate it that way. He's got gold and he, he, he looks like a, a fine piece of jewelry, basically. But he, he's a marvelous creature. The, the Scriptures decide uh, tell us that. And then it says this, On the day that you were created, these things were prepared. You were, you were made this way. And then it says this, You were the anointed cherub who covers. And literally that word covers means guards. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, what this passage is saying is this is a beautiful creature who was righteous and holy. And, and he was beautiful to look at. He was beautiful to listen to. He was beautiful, okay? He was amazing and and scripture uses you 'll notice in scripture that very often when the writer can 't describe what he 's seeing he'll use jewels uh, when when the New Testament writers talk about heaven, they describe it streets of gold uh, gates of of, of uh, pearl because those those were the most magnificent things they could think of as Rosa so the Holy Spirit allows. Ezekiel, to translate this and to, and to put this into words and, and, to, and to give words to where words can't be given. In other words, that's what I'm trying to say. As he describes this creature, he's beautiful beyond description. He's wise beyond description. But here's the thing. He is an angelic being. Satan was an angelic being. He's still an angelic being. I want you to understand that. He's still an angelic being. And he, the Bible says that he is one of the cherubim. Now, those are not the little fat angels that you buy and hang on your, your uh, fireplace, okay, or sit with their legs down. A cherub, that, that's where it comes from, but, but that's, that wasn't the way the cherubim looked. Uh, if you remember the Ark of the Covenant, there are two cherubim, one on either side, and they guard the presence of God. And what this text says that literally Lucifer was the chief guard. He he stood in the very presence of God. He was the anointed cherub who covers. And you realize that that all of those pieces that were in the the temple, they were modeled from the heavenly picture. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, God just didn't say, hey, I want you to build a box and put two angels over it. No, God was describing the way heaven looked where he sat on his throne. And so Satan was one of those angels. He, he may have been the chief angel that covered. He was a cherubim. Now, there are other orders of angels, okay? There are seraphim, the burning ones. Uh, there, there, Michael is referred to as an archangel. And I don't know what you've been taught, and I don't know what you've read, but there is one archangel in Scripture. His name is Michael. You read other uh, apocryphal books, they will mention other... Archangels, whether they are or not, I don't know. Scripture mentions one. I don't think Satan was an archangel. Okay, it doesn't say that he was. It says he was a cherubim, an anointed one that covers. And so, anyway, Satan is—he's in the very presence of God. He—the the, the cherubim—they were the angelic order that guarded the holiness of God. I always think this way, but. You know what? God God just did that because he didn't really need to be guarded. You you do understand that, don't you? But that's how he arranged it, okay? And so Satan was made to be in his presence. He was made to reflect his glory. He was made, obviously, if you take the tambourine and flute uh, uh, interpretation, he was made to make music. He was created to glorify God. And he was full of wisdom. He was exquisitely beautiful. His, 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 His Covering reflected God's glory, and, and it must have been amazing. it must have been like a rainbow around God. He was likely the very well not the very but the most beautiful angel that was created, and he began his existence in the presence of God, but something happened, a little conjunction but but something happened. Scripture says that unrighteousness was found in him. Another word for unrighteousness is sin. His exquisite beauty and his wisdom corrupted him. Listen to what Ezekiel 28 verse 16 and and the very first part of verse 17 says. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. In other words, Lucifer fell in love with himself. He fell in love with himself. He's more beautiful than any of the other angels. I mean, have you ever seen anybody that was in love with themselves? Okay, y'all know what I'm talking about. And that love for himself became sin. And it seems that that pride began to well up within him and and a lust for more power began to fill his heart. And if you look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 14, that pride is clearly spelled out. And we're we're going to see that and the results of what happened. It's how you have fallen from heaven. Oh, star of the morning. The word Lucifer is a Latin word. The Hebrew word means the shining one. And that's, what, that's who he was known as. He was the shining one. That's literally what star of the morning means. Son of the dawn, you have been cut down to earth. You who have weakened the nations. And here's, here's what happened. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars. The angels are usually referred to as stars. They're often referred to as stars. It says, "I will, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud." Literally, meaning, you know what? I will usurp God's authority. And then it says this: "I will make myself like El Elyon. I will make myself. I will be like God." In other words, I will then be God. And this is a created being, okay? He starts off, he says, yeah, I'll, I'll ascend to heaven, I'll go where I want to. I'll raise my throne above the other angels. I won't just be one of the angels, I'll be the chief angel. It, gets, it progressively gets, I'll sit on the mount of assembly, I'll, I'll sit where God sits. I'll send into the heights of the clouds. I'll, I'll move on up through the through the heavens into the third heaven where God literally is and I will be like God. I'll be God. Now we know from a passage in Revelation that when 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 this took place Lucifer led a rebellion. He decided he would be God. And he led a rebellion, And Scripture tells us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, the very first part of it, that he, a third of the angels joined with him. And it's, it's, it says this, it says, And his tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and threw them to earth. That's where, we, that's where theologians get that he took a third of the, of the angels of heaven with him. Now, I don't know what a third of the angels is because I don't know what the total number that God created, okay? We're not told, but it's a lot. And so, these angels fell with Satan, and, and I believe, and I believe Scripture teaches this, they became demonic angels. This is where demonic spirits came from, okay? There are a whole bunch of other explanations, and, and I don't think any of them hold water. If you believe one of them, that's fine with you. I just personally don't, I don't buy them, okay? And here's why. It's God banished them from the third heaven. That's where heaven God is okay? There's the second heaven. That's where the prince and the power of the air reigns. And then there's the heaven, the atmosphere that we can't see, but we can see, that we breathe. You understand? That's that's the mindset of Scripture. There were three heavens. There's the heaven that we breathe out of, then then the the second heaven, which is the abode of, of the spirits, and then there's the third heaven where God is. And so these demonic spirits fail with Satan. And Satan, Jesus called him the prince of demons, okay? So if you're going to be the prince or the king of demons, then you, you have, they have to be like you. And so they were like him. I believe that's what indicates that the, the demonic spirits are angels. And these, these demons, according to Scripture, are arrayed in a very organized system. And if you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, we're not fighting each other. We're not fighting our neighbor who, who constantly harasses us. We're not fighting our boss at work who makes things tough on us. We're not fighting this person. We're not fighting City Hall. We're not fighting our government. We're not fighting, you know, our brother or sister. Okay, they're not the enemy. Scripture says that we don't fight against flesh and blood. Scripture says that our enemy is, listen, it's against rulers. It's against the powers. It's against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. See, there's a well-organized system of angelic beings. Now, I don't know that this is true. I'm just speculating. But I imagine when Satan fell, he took angels from a lot of different orders, and then they, in turn, became angels... In this order, okay? In other words, there were powerful, less powerful, somewhat powerful, okay? Maybe. When they failed, they didn't lose their power, okay? They didn't lose their knowledge, they didn't lose their wisdom. They just lost their place in the presence of God, okay? Y'all still with me? I sure am glad y'all prayed for me when I started because I've been taking a beating over this stuff all week long. <clears throat> now, so we know where he came from. We know where our enemy came from. He was once an angel, a very beautiful angel. But because of his beauty and because of his wisdom, he corrupted himself. And sin was found in him. He rebelled against God, and God cast him out of heaven. There, there, there wasn't a war, Okay. If you'll read the text in Revelation, when it begins to talk about a war in heaven, it's not talking about when Satan fell. It's talking about right before Jesus returns, there's a war in heaven, in that second heaven. You remember a few weeks ago, God really has no enemies. Because to be a credible enemy, you have to have a chance of of defeating him. And folks, nobody has a chance of defeating omnipotent God. He stands alone. There's nothing like Him. There's no dualism. There's no good versus evil. There's God. Okay? And Satan's battle is is not against God. It's against us. And that's why Jesus came. And He came in the flesh so that He could defeat Satan as a human being so that then we could walk in that victory. Y'all with me? Okay. It's important. Now, the word Satan, that's one of the names that, that He's given. It means adversary. The devil, which is a very common one that we use in in the South, okay? It means, uh, it literally means slanderer, okay? That's what the Hebrew word means. He is the hasatan, the, the, the deceiver, the slanderer, the adversary. And folks, he's our adversary. He's our enemy. He's called the accuser of the brethren because he accuses us night and day from that place in the second heaven. He accused Job. You remember the story of Job? God says, Satan, have you seen my servant Job? Yeah, 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 I've seen him. But if you let me take away his stuff, he only loves you because you give him stuff. If you let me take away his stuff, he'll curse you to your face. God says, have at him, but you can't touch his body. You know the story. Job doesn't curse God. He lost everything. Comes another day. God says, "Satan, have you seen my servant Job?" Yeah, 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 yeah. But if you let me touch his body, he'll curse you to his fa- to your face. God says, "You may touch his body, but you cannot kill him." See, Satan has to get permission to attack. You need to file that away in the back of your mind. Okay, he doesn't have all authority nor all power. He has to get permission. Okay? And he can only go so far. His desire is to kill us. Folks, if he could do what he wanted, we would all be dead today. But God hasn't given him that permission. And so, let me get back to where I'm at with the names, because the names are important. He's he's called by four different names in Scripture. He's called Satan. He's called the devil. He's also called Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. That's what that means, the Lord of the Flies. And I'm not going to get too deep in this, but one of the gods of Ekron was called the Lord of the Flies. He was the the Lord of Dung. Well, that's the name the Jews had attached to him. He was Beelzebub. And they, they accused Jesus of being Beelzebub, the devil. That's what they were saying. There's one other name, it's Belial, and that literally means the worthless, lawless one. And all of those names describe him. They describe his personality, describe what he does. And if we pay attention to the names and we pay attention to the titles, we understand our adversary a little bit better. He's an accuser. He's always an adversary. He's, he's never for us. He's always against us. I, I remember an old man told me one time, he said, if you ever see the devil hitchhiking, don't pick him up. He always wants to drive. He never wants to ride. I've never forgot that. He's an adversary, folks. He wants control. He wants to be in charge. Now, he's also called the evil one. He's called uh, the tempter. He's called the prince of this world the god of this age the prince and the power of the of the air he's also called the serpent and the dragon now if if you just think for a moment as children what were we most afraid of snakes and dragons they always are the villains except modern day when they try to make serpents and and dragons, heroes, okay? But when I was growing up, the serpent and the dragon, was they were always the villains. Well, there's a reason for that. It's biblical, okay? I never see a snake that I don't think about that. I'm not going where I want to go here in my mind, so I'm going to stop there, because none of y'all need to know how I feel about snakes. I don't like them. So a clue, a clue to knowing our enemy is found in what he's called and how he's described. And see we need to we need to file those things because those things will help us understand when he attacks. He's going to slander. He's going to accuse. He's going to lie. Paul gives us a warning. And in this warning he's he's talking to the church there in Corinth and he's talking about the false teachers. And, and the false teachers would come in to the church there at Corinth, and they would, they would tell the members of the church that they were apostles, that they had been deputized by the apostles, but they were false teachers. And then they would teach a lie, which would confuse the body of Christ. And so one of the things you see in the New Testament is a constant, be on your guard for false teachers. Okay, Scripture then in, in Paul's, as he's talking about these false preachers, I mean, and teachers, this is what he says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. He says, and no wonder this is such. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. See, the angels of light were heavenly angels. See, he hadn't lost his ability to be what he needs to be whenever he needs to be that. He, he's a master of disguise and, and deception. And it seems from this that he can appear in different forms. I mean, we know that, that he appeared as a serpent in the garden. It says here that he can appear as, a, as an angel of light. What Paul is saying is, hey, look. Satan can even look like a heavenly angel. Folks, if you'll study the history of the church, he has appeared as an angel before. And there are groups out there that have their their start from an appearance by an angel. The only problem is the angel did not give the teachings of Scripture. The angel came with a new message, a larger message, a more in-depth message, whatever you want to call it. And he has lured people into something that looks like Christianity but is not Christianity. He appears as an angel of light, Folks... We have to be on our guard. He can be at whatever our mind wants him to be. Or he can be whatever he wants to be, which messes our mind up. See, so we're imagining that when he appears, he's going to show up with the little horns and a pitchfork. He's not, okay? He may be that really good-looking guy at work, okay? He may be that really good-looking lady at work. He may be anything. And we have to be aware of that. There are some more clues that come from listening to what Jesus said. Two of those are found, I think, in John chapter 8, verse 44. And it says this. Satan is a, it says you, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. They're arguing with him. They're accusing him of being Beelzebub. And he says this. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. And listen to what he says. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What does Scripture say? He is a murderer and a liar. Okay? He wants to kill you, and he'll do anything to do that. He, he will tell the truth, but he will twist it into a lie. Satan is is what, you know what we would call a cold-blooded murderer. He wants to kill us and and he wants to to, to lie to us. And and he can quote Scripture, okay? He proved that by quoting Scripture to Jesus. Turn this bread into... Turn these rocks into bread. Jump off. Your father won't let you dash your feet on the stones below. He'll catch you. That came right out of the Old Testament. Except he twisted it in a situation where it wasn't written for. It would have caused Jesus to have done something before it was God's time to do it. So he lied. And so, folks, he can twist Scripture. I've I've heard twisted Scripture. Let me give you one. Whenever a person has a past, they've been hurt, very often well-meaning teachers will say, you know what, Scripture says that you are to put the past behind you. You're you're to you're to forget about it. In other words, God has forgotten about it, and they'll use a passage where Paul says, "Forgetting what lies behind, I press on to the mark of the heavenly calling." And they'll, I've heard people quote that to me. Well, I'm not supposed to go back and deal with that stuff. I, I've been told to forget it. That's not what Scripture teaches. Paul's talking about his religious degrees and who he was as a Pharisee. He's not talking about his past life. See, if we don't deal with our past. We can never step into our future. It's a twist. It's a, it's a nice little verse, and it sounds really good. Forget about what lies behind you. Press on toward Christ. That sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds like something Jesus would say. It's just not. It's a twisted little lie. We have to deal with our past. We have to ask God to forgive us if we've done something, and we have to forgive those who've done things to us. Y'all with me? I'm not going to preach on forgiveness. I've already spent weeks on that. But we don't just put everything behind us and move on. We deal with it. We get it completed. We fold it up and we toss it behind us and we move on. But not until we deal with it. Okay? Now I'm getting back to where I was. Okay? So he can be very, very believable. Let me just put it that way. And if you're gullible, guess what? You'll take the hook, the line, and the sinker, and you'll be on his stringer before you know it. Folks, he'll tell you all kinds of stuff. That's what temptation is. Temptation is an illegitimate means of fulfilling a legitimate need God has given us. What you think about that. God has given all of us legitimate needs. He's created us with certain needs. And the only way that we can be tempted is if we try to fulfill a need that God has a way of fulfilling with an illegitimate thing. In other words, some of the things He'll tell you. It's okay to lie. What did He tell Eve? This fruit will make you more like God. She was already like God. She was created in God's image and likeness. That man, that woman... You know what? You deserve them. Your spouse is not meeting your needs. They will. It's okay to look at at these pictures. They don't hurt anybody. They're just pictures. Take it. You deserve it. You ever heard those things? You don't have to nod your heads. We all have. Folks, Satan's a liar. And he'll take that temptation, and he will stab you in the heart with it. Okay? The very thing that he tempts you to do, he will kill you with. He will kill you with it. Jesus calls him a thief, okay? And he gives us his purpose in John chapter 10, the very beginning of, of, of verse 10. It says, the thief comes only to steal. It's, there's a little word there, only. Only to steal and to kill. And the word kill there literally means slaughter. He comes to kill or comes to steal, slaughter, and destroy. The idea, folks, that, that we can somehow make a, a deal with the devil is crazy. Guess who came up with that idea? He did. Okay? We can't make a deal, and we can't outsmart him, okay? You remember what it said back in Ezekiel? He was full of wisdom. He, he's smart, very smart. And folks, the only deals he makes benefits him. All right? Jesus didn't try to outsmart him. If you study what Jesus did when he he was fasting those 40 days and he was out in the wilderness by himself, what happened? Satan would come and Satan would tempt him. He was hungry, a legitimate need God has given all of us. Satan says, hey, nobody's here. Turn those rocks into bread. What did Jesus do? Let me think about that. No, he didn't say that. He said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Satan comes with another temptation. Jesus goes, it is written. Da-da-da-da-da. He comes with a third temptation. It It is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus didn't engage him in conversation. He didn't argue with him. He didn't think about what he was saying. He said, it is written. He took the Word of God... And he answered with the word of God. Folks, we cannot outsmart the devil. If we try to, he will tie us up in knots, and he will leave us dead on the side of the road. Okay? He will destroy everything that we have. We have to answer with Scripture. We have to confront him with Scripture. Even Michael, who from what I understand in Scripture is the archangel. He is the ruling angel, the most powerful angel Today, in heaven. When, when Moses died, Jude tells us that, that, that there was an argument between Satan and between Michael. There was a disagreement over who got the body. Now, I don't understand all that, so don't ask me any more about it. Because I don't know, okay? But here's what it says in Jude 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce judgment or a railing judgment against him. But this is what he said: the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. I mean, this is the guy who one day will cast him into hell. This is this is the, the most powerful angel there is, the archangel. See, Satan lost no power when he fell. But folks, he's not omnipotent. He lost no wisdom when he fell, but he's not omniscient. And we need to pay attention to how Jesus defeated him and how how, uh, Michael responded to him instead of trying to come up with all these little prayers that if they're said a certain way, ensure his defeat. Or pouring oil here or sprinkling water there or waving a crucifix, okay? Oh, that's TV, all right? Now, now listen to me. The cross is powerful, all right? You, You need to understand that. Oil is powerful. But it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Even even water that's been blessed, and we'll call it holy water, is powerful. But just because you take up a handful of that or throw a bottle of oil at him or wave a a wooden crucifix at him doesn't mean he's going to go, oh no, I've got to run. It's the power behind those things that he fears. It's Jesus. Okay? So if you've got the accoutrements but you don't have Jesus, guess what? He ain't going to back up. He's going to lick his lips like a lion, and he's coming after you. Y'all with me on this? Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm I'm not in any way dismissing the power of oil and anointing with oil. I'm not dismissing in any way using water that's been blessed. I'm not dismissing in any way the cross. But I'm saying if you don't understand the power that's behind those symbols, the symbols are worthless. Okay, and he knows that. Okay. We're not called to outsmart him. We're not called to outfight him. Folks, he's physically stronger than we are, and he is mentally faster. We're not even called to pray prayers to bind him. Now, I'm going to get on some people's hobby horses here, okay? I want you all to listen to me. Scripture tells us that he will be bound one time. Okay? And that will be at the second coming of Jesus Christ. He will be bound, and I'm going to read the text to you, for a thousand years. And he won't be able to tempt. And at the end of the thousand years, Scripture says that he's released for a time. And at the end of that short time, he's cast into hell, where he will be bound forever. Listen to what Revelation chapter twenty, verse one through three says. John says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss. That's not hell, okay? That's the abyss, the bottomless pit. And a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Now, the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that we didn't miss who's getting chained up, okay? He says, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. For a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he didn't see the nations any longer until the thousand years were complete. After these things, he has to be released for a short time. I have heard Christians over and over and over and over and over pray, I bind you, Satan. Okay? And they think they're doing something. If he was bound, when we pray that, we'd have very little trouble with him. Amen? How many of you have ever heard anybody pray that? Okay, I understand what they they think they're doing. Okay, we can bind his works, we can bind his demonic spirits that he sends, but we can't bind him. All right, and we need to realize that that's that's basically waving a sword in the air and throwing rocks at the moon. All right, most of the rocks you throw up come down, and guess who they will hit? Okay, they will. So be careful what you pray. We can't bind something that has not been bound already in heaven. If I understand Scripture correctly, He has not been bound yet. But Folks, there is a day coming when He will be bound. When His power will be cast into the abyss. His power has been broken. But He's still powerful. Okay, He's still dangerous. We're not called to bind him, we're called to stand firm against him. We're called to withstand him. Listen to, to these two passages of scripture. When I read one of these this week, it just the light came on for me. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 5 8 and 9. He says be of somber or be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary Satan. Your adversary. The devil prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone' desire, but resist him, firm in your faith. And then listen to what James 4.7 says. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The word resist in both of these verses literally means to stand firm. It's the same root word that's found in Ephesians 6 when it says stand firm, stand firm, stand firm, withstand. It's the same word. It, it means to oppose. It means literally, this. if you were to translate it word for word right out of the Greek text, when you take your stand, he will flee from you. When you take your stand he will flee from you. I'm going to say it again. When you take your stand, he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and when you resist him, he will flee from you. That's what the text is saying. If you don't resist him, guess what? The roaring lion comes through your camp. You ever been run over? I'll never forget Over by what's the new Huffman School that they built? It used to be Walmart and all that stuff there in Huffman. There's a road that goes over to Edwards. It may be Edwards Lake Road. That may be what it was. We did some houses right, right up the little hill there. And I remember one day I went out and got my plumbing truck, and for some reason I I cranked the truck and I put it in gear, and I got this idea I'd forgotten something. I stepped out. You know what my truck did? It ran over me. It knocked me down, okay? It rolled down across the road and into the woods. There wasn't any houses there. And right across the road. It didn't hurt the truck. But I'm going to tell you what, I didn't know what had happened for a few minutes. I I was... Then I remembered, golly, you dumbo. You're supposed to put the thing in, in, in park and all that stuff. Folks, Satan will run over you like that. And you won't know what to do. It says... Resist him, and then he will flee from you. Stand firm. Plant your feet. No, you're not coming here. You're not entering my house. You're not getting in my head. I don't believe that lie. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, I'm going to go on. If we don't resist him, he's not going to flee. Folks, he doesn't want to fight Jesus See, when we resist, when we plant our feet firm, we're saying, in effect, I'm in Christ, and I'm not moving. And you know what? He believes that. He sees that because he sees Jesus. You remember when I took Flat Nelson and put him in the... Okay, it's that picture. We are in Christ. But if we don't plant our feet and we don't resist him, he's not going to flee. He's not going to run. Folks, he's betting that we don't believe what Scripture says. He's betting that we won't ever read these passages that I've read. He's he's betting if we do read them, we'll just explain them away. He's a gambler. He's betting that we believe the fairy tales. It's a lot easier to believe that he has horns on his head and a forked uh, tail and and a fork in his hand, than it is that he was a beautiful creature created by God with musical instruments sticking out of him. Amen? Come on, y'all. It's just a lot easier to believe that. And if we don't be good, the boogeyman will get us. Okay? Okay. He's betting we'll believe that. But those are tales and fables that have arisen through the centuries. That's not what the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God teaches. Folks, listen to me. He's not afraid of rituals. He's not afraid of what Aunt Susie told you. He's not afraid of, of anything but Jesus. And he's afraid of the blood of Jesus when we know that we're covered in it. Okay? He's afraid of that. And he knows what that means. If, if you want to walk daily... And victory. Folks, you've got to understand what the Bible says about your enemy. You have to know it. You have to believe it. You have to walk in it. Here's a verse you need to write down, okay? And you need to memorize this, and you need to use it every chance you get. It's found in, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. This is a verse that Satan himself knows, but he hopes that you don't know. It, it's a devastating sword in the hand of a believer, Okay? It reminds him of, of where he's going, what his future is. Scripture says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Gehenna. Jesus taught about Gehenna. This is hell. Okay? This is not the fairy taleized version of hell. This is hell. Okay? Where brimstone burns. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented. The word there means tortured. Caused pain. Day and night, forever and ever and ever. How long is forever? Forever. Folks, he's not in hell at this moment. But very soon he will be. And he will not be there for a little while, he'll be there for eternity. He'll be sentenced to the place that literally was created for him. Jesus said this. He he was talking about uh, those that were wicked and evil. And he said this, Depart from me, accursed ones. And then listen to what he says, Into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell wasn't prepared for us. God never intended that any human being ever go to that place. It was built, designed, constructed for Satan and for his, for his angels. Listen to me. Jesus has defeated Satan as a man. And as followers of Christ, we are in Christ, which means he's been defeated in our lives if we remain seated in Christ. And 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 we take our stand on the battlefield. Folks, it's only when we resist, when we stand firm, that he flees. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. He says, and the God of peace, not the God of war, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Literally, what that verse says is God will soon throw him under your feet so that you may trample him. I remember back in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus said this, Behold, I have given you authority to trample, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Folks, we have been given the authority to stand firm against the enemy who attacks us. But unless we know this, And listen to me, it's not enough just even to know it. Unless we do this, folks, it's likely we won't stand firm. It's likely that we'll turn and run when the pressures get tough. And I know a lot of you are going through some stuff right now. Okay, listen to me. Stand firm. Resist Him. Because when you resist Him, the Bible says, He will flee from you. God will not leave you. He will not forsake you. There's a lie being taught right now in present day Christianity that God will not put on you more than you can stand. Okay, Scripture does not teach that. If you go to Hebrews chapter eleven and twelve, you you see a list of people that went through all kinds of stuff. When you when when you, when you're putting a log and sawn in half, it's more than you can stand. Amen. When when you're dressed in animal skins and stoned, it's more than you can stand. When you're crucified, it's more than you can stand. Listen, when you've lost a child, it's more than you can stand. When you've lost a spouse, it's more than you can stand. When your husband or your wife says, hey, I don't love you anymore, and they leave, it's more than you can stand. When you get sick and you don't have any hope, it's more than you can stand. When your parents abandon you, it's more than you can stand. You know what Jesus said? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here's what he did say. I will never allow temptation to overwhelm you. I will never allow the enemy to put more temptation on you than you can stand without providing a door of escape. Folks, we go through all kinds of things that are more than we can stand. That's a lie. Stuff will overwhelm us. But God says, I will go through it with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will not allow your enemy to destroy you. We are His, folks. We're His. And if we understand who He is and the limit of His power, we can gain the victory every day in every situation. Now, that victory may not look like we think it should. But listen to me. Victory is victory. I hate to lose I'm just going I'm not'm I'm not, I'm not I can't play games just for the joy of playing games okay I want to win you say well, else and you're sick well maybe I am. I don't fit in the culture today okay The ones that win are the ones that plant their feet and stand firm and the ones that don't get washed away. they get defeated they live a life of defeat and folks we don't have to be defeated. Jesus said this greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. The greater one is in us. The victory is ours. Let's pray. Father, this morning. For more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Eagles Wing Church. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.